for a very uh, good story that leads us into this text today. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3 and verse 15 to 29 or in your scripture journal. We still have some of those available if you would, would like one. And as I've said the last few weeks, we're going to be in Galatians for a little bit, so it's not too late. Today we're coming to the end of chapter 3. So a little behind where I, where I thought we'd be, but that is uh, that's typical, the way things roll uh, once you get into a text. And I was reminded this this week, and in, in, as I've been sort of saturating myself in this book in Galatians, and hopefully you have too, that just the ways that God uh, stirs up things when we are in a, in a series like this, and you know, when we talk about it as a, a preaching team and we're like, why, why do we want to do Galatians? What is the point of this? And then some of the things that just sort of surface and come out of it, uh, it's rich. And so hopefully that's been your experience. And I, I've, uh, again, I'm just blessed by some of you that, that have been sharing some things that you've been learning out of this series and following along and showing me things in your scripture journal that you, uh, you've been drawing or, or writing down notes. And that's, that's just great because we want to be engaged with the word. That's really important to us here, the church. Like, if you just come and sit here for a little while and then leave, um, there, the, the impact, we, we hope, will still be there, but we desire it to be more, that you will actually be walking uh, with the Lord, walking in the Word throughout the week and, and meditating on these things, like focusing your thoughts and your mind, whether it's in a, in a life group or on your own, in your own quiet time. Uh, we do have those discussion guides that are available for anybody to have online or also at the welcome desk. You can do that, so you better get into it here. All right. So uh, before we read today, and we're going to read this in a little bit of, of sections throughout, uh, we are in this series in Galatians, and it's called, entitled it, The Free Life. And the Apostle Paul here, the last little while, he's been acting in a way, uh, you know, Tammy talked about the law, and there's, there's lawyers, and I don't know, I guess it depends on how you look at, at where Paul is at as far as the, the, you know, the prosecutor or the defense in this scenario, but probably defending the gospel in that way. Uh, but it, it, as far as his argument that he's been going on, we've seen already this, this theme of Galatians, this, we could say it's like a broken record, um, of, of him preaching this solid, clear message, a singular path almost through this book, is that you are justified, you are made right, declared righteous before God by faith and by faith alone. And maybe not as much like a broken record uh, in that negative context, but really it's the, it's the song that we should be singing. Continually, It's the, the song sheet that we all gather around and sing in unison. That this is uh, the way that we are accepted by God, is by faith. And not uh, by our performance, by our, our works or the things, nothing that we can do to earn or, or gain merit before God on our own. And so Paul has been, been arguing this case, and he has argued, first, you know, he's talked about their spiritual experiences earlier in chapter 3. Looking back, going back to the things, this is what you experienced when you first heard the gospel, and, and you turned your life in faith to, to Christ, and, and your conversion experience, and even the struggles, the trials that you went through was because of that, and, and also the miracles that you, you witnessed was because of that. And then down the road, all of a sudden, someone comes along and says, no, that's not enough. And you need to have, 
you know, obedience to the law. You need to submit, surrender to the law of Moses uh, in order to be accepted by God. And, and Paul has denounced this. He said this is a distortion of the gospel. Coming back to being justified by faith alone. And so all those things that you experienced came about as a result of faith and the work of the Spirit, not as a result of the law. And then last week, he, as I said, he brought out the big guns, brought out Abraham. And talking about his receiving this by faith, and this is going to continue a bit on that today. Today we're going to see that Paul's appeal really centers on the very promise of God. And so this is uh, where we're heading today in this last part of chapter 3. We're going to talk about when God makes a promise. We're going to talk about why the law was added. And then ultimately how we today share in that promise. So let me pray and then we will uh, jump into the first part, verse 15 to 18. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it speaks life to us. Thank you that you are, you are the author of it. And you hold the authority uh, for our lives, we surrender and submit ourselves to that, to the authority of God that is found in your word. Help it to shape us, to shape our thinking. And we pray that we would also be listening to your voice, the voice of your spirit, uh, throughout these words that were written to a, a group of churches long ago, but also for us today. Amen. All right, here we go. Galatians 3, we'll look at 15 to 18. When God makes a promise. Verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. All right, here we go. So the promise, it says it was made to Abraham. And we look back on this, we see this in, in the book of Genesis, and there's really kind of the three key passages here in, in Genesis talking about Abram was Genesis 12, 15, and 17. And so in Genesis 12, we see the original, the call of, of Abram, okay, who became Abraham. But first of all, Genesis 12 calls him, and, and God says that there is a, a land that you're going to possess, and there's going to be a blessing, and that his name would be great, that he'd be a great nation, and that all nations of the, of the earth would be blessed through him. Genesis 15 carries on with this, and, and Abraham is like, how is this going to happen? Because you, you mentioned something about in, you know, descendants, and we don't have any kids. And so they were getting old, and he says, like, this is, this is kind of what I understand. I mean, I'm putting a little bit on Abraham's conversation with God here, but he's kind of thinking, like, if we're going to have descendants, I, we probably need to have at least one child. And, right, this would be kind of logical. How is this going to happen? And then in that, God says, well, let's make a, a covenant. Let's make a covenant. 
And then in verse in chapter 17, we see that there's the sign of the covenant that was Abram's part with, with circumcision. And I'm only going to say circumcision once today, except that was twice, and that's all. <laughs> all right. Okay, so Genesis 15, we'll focus on that for a bit because this is the area of the, the covenant, the promise. And that's very similar words, all right? Promise and covenant. God makes this with Abram. Now, here, here he comes to him and says, let's make a, a covenant. And this was a, a common practice in the day, in the culture. It wasn't God just saying, I'm going to come up with something and we'll call it a covenant. It was something that they did. They practiced it with, with land deals, with marriages, with, with agreements between families and, and groups. And they did this. And so God says, let's do this. And so they, they cut a covenant. And that's the word for covenant. It means to cut now, if you are a business person, uh, maybe you still use this term as far as, you know, say, hey, let's, let's cut a deal. We're meeting together, get, got drawn up the paperwork, and we're going to cut a deal. This is really what that, where that comes from, to cut a deal. So there's cutting involved. So what we see in Genesis 15, God says to Abram, let's, let's do this, and so bring me some animals. And so he, he says, let's get a, a heifer, and let's get a goat, and a ram, and then some birds. And they don't, they don't, do this, cut the birds, but the rest of these animals, they cut them in half, right? This is part of cutting the covenant. So they would take these animals, take this heifer, and just cut it right in half and just like spray it open like that. Just, and we go, that's really gross. But this was a different time. And the idea with the covenant, then these two, the two parties would potentially lock arms or hold hands or whatever, and then walk through the, the entrails, Right? They would walk, walk through it, and this was part of their, their statement saying, this, let it be so to me if I break the covenant. Like, I'm going to be torn apart. It's a pretty visual thing, don't you think? And this is what, what happened. So God says, do this. And we carry on through Genesis 15, and we see what happens is that Abram falls into a deep sleep. And in this sleep, there, the Lord actually passes through and it says that it's a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch that passes through the pieces. That's the Lord going through these, these pieces. But recognizing that Abram is sleeping, he doesn't actually do his part of the covenant. And this tells us something, and we see it throughout particularly the Old Testament, is that the covenant that God was making and establishing with his people was never going to be based on their ability or their effort to keep it. Because we see that constantly throughout the Old Testament is that the people of Israel, they keep saying, yes, yes, we'll agree, we'll agree, we'll follow you, we'll follow you, but they fail. And they break covenant. And so it was always going to be based on a promise-keeping God. And Abram's part was to believe and then obey, symbolized by the sign of circumcision. Okay, that was three. I'm sorry. That's it. <laughs> All right, so made to, uh, made to offspring is the next part. So this is what now Paul goes on to. This covenant, this promise arrangement made, to, made between God and Abram and to his descendants, Paul does this very interesting thing, and, and we might say it's a grammatical leap or, or even an, an interpretive leap on things, but it was a common interpretive practice, how, how 
teachers would take the, the law, take the scriptures, and, and apply it. And not to stretch it or make it say something that it didn't say, but actually to reveal what it's really saying. And so Paul says this, is that the promise was actually made to offspring singular. Singular. Now, Tanya and I, we're, we're often we're asked by people that we meet, uh, you know, do you have any offspring? Actually, they don't usually say that nowadays, right? But do you have any kids? Do you have any children? We, we don't have any here. And I know you're amazed because you're thinking, man, these people are so young. And uh, how can their kids be um, so old? We started young, very young. But uh, our, our oldest child this next Sunday, Saturday or something like that, one of those days coming, it's her birthday. She's going to be 30. Like our oldest child is going to be 30. You're like, what? How old is this guy? But people ask us, so what, tell us about your kids, your, your offspring. How, you know, how your offspring? And, and it's, it's curious because when I, we talk about our kids and, and I, I try to I tell people, we've, we've instructed our kids or we've told our kids to, to, you know, affirm them throughout their life. And we say, yeah, these are, these are our kids. And they're, they're somewhat intelligent and generally attractive. That's what, we've, that's what we've said to them all their life, just to kind of keep their heads small, you know, not too, not too big. Um, you know, <laughs> we love them, but, you know, it was a, it's a joke. We, we think they're more than somewhat intelligent. All this to say, how many kids do you have? This is the point. And uh, they, how many kids do you have? And, and I always say, now I say, well, we have three. And Tanya says we have six. And I look at her, what? And, but then she's talking about how we've, we've grown as far as our three children getting married. And that we, we have now incorporated them into our, our herd, I guess. And so, but I still say, okay, we have three Biological, like of our of our own, and now three that have uh, have come in, and, and we have to love them too. We have, but these are our these are our intentional like offspring, as such. But we have three. But Paul here is saying, taking all of this this message that had been communicated through through centuries as the promise of Abraham to a people to a nation. And we see in the time of Jesus where they were, they were saying, we're, we're children of Abraham. That they were assuming that, that they were under the promise. And Paul here just like blows it all away and says, actually, the offspring, singular. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. And the heir, the fulfillment of all the things in the promise landed on a person. Not on a nation, on Jesus. Now, this is an interpretive principle that we continue to apply today. When we read scripture, particularly the Old Testament, that in all of its, you know, things that we don't understand in terms of the context and the culture of the day because we're, we're removed from it. But we look at it and we say all of that is pointing to Jesus. That's the point of it. And so when you read the Old Testament, this is the questions. These are the things that you have to say. How does this apply to Jesus? How was this fulfilled in the person and the work of Jesus? Because that's the whole point. This is what Paul is giving us this, this clue. 
And Paul is saying that the promise actually superseded the law. It came before the law. He says 430 years before. And it's just like in a human agreement. This is what he says. You know, let's take a human everyday example. And he's talking about this, this covenant, this, this deal. Maybe talking about a, a will and testament. There's a little bit of words that are sometimes confused in the transition, uh, translation. But... And if you think about a will, if we go with that context, if, if somebody writes a will and then dies, it's, it's not refutable. Like it's, it's something that you can't, it, wasn't, it isn't annulled, it's, it's fulfilled because the person, he, you know, wrote it down, it's the last will and testament. When they write it, they can't just rewrite it or change it. I was thinking about this with, uh, with wills, and some of you, maybe if you were... Uh, born and raised on the prairie, prairies might have heard about this, but I saw this was in the, the global news, and it's 75 years ago from this, this October where this happened, and there was a historic will in good old Saskatchewan, and this is what, what it says in this article in global news. It says, on June 8th, 1948, Cecil George Harris became pinned under his tractor on a farm near Rosetown, Saskatchewan. It says, fearing that he may not survive, he used his pocket knife to scratch the will, his will, onto the tractor's fender. And this is what he wrote. In case I die in this mess, I leave all to the wife. Cecil Geo Harris, he didn't get the George, I guess, down. For 10 hours, he lay under the tractor, and he, and he ended up dying the next day, succumbing to his injuries. Then the neighbors found the message on the fender of the tractor. And interestingly enough, those 16 words formed a case precedent for lawyers the world over. And it's commonly used as an example in law textbooks on wills and estates. You know, we always, we joked about it, you know, on the farms. Like a farmer, you know, has had a farm accident, writes his will in the dirt. It's legit, right? Precedent, setting. Irrefutable. <laughs> but you know, all kinds of wills and agreements are, are written. But Paul is saying this is, there's a common illustration in just our everyday life. There's promises. And this actually applies to the very promise of God. How much more, he would say, the promise of God cannot be annulled. The promise made originally to Abram. And so the law came 430 years after this promise to covenant. This is what promised Abraham. This is what he's, he's saying. It was, it was so much before, and now the, the swing has happened for those who come against it and say, yeah, it's all about the law of Moses. You have to live according to that. And he said, no, check your history. It started with Abraham and the promise of God. So why was the law even given, right? Good question, and this is where he carries on in the next Verses in 19 to 24. Why the law was added. Let's carry on. Why then the law? It was added because of, the trans, because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, 
then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Verse 23. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Now, one thing to understand with this, this letter uh, to these churches is that there is a mixed audience, and so there is a large part of this that's focused on the Gentile Christians who came to faith and now are under this, this pressure by these Judaizers to also come under the law. But there is also Jews and these Judaizers that are in, this, in the congregation that he's addressing. And so some of, you know, this is actually also speaking to those under law, those who have, this has been their history. This is all that they have, have known. And so it's, it's a little tricky determining sometimes the exact person, people that, that Paul is speaking to. And so sometimes when he says us, he's referring to himself as, as a Jew, one that knew the law, understood the law, followed the law. And, and so this wouldn't necessarily have all been applied to the Gentiles because they, they had never been under the law. They didn't know the law. But then at the end, it kind of brings it all uh, together. But here you go. So the law was added. What was really the purpose of the law? And Tammy just pointed this right out for us this morning already. So it, it revealed sin. If that's what the law did, it it, showed, it shows us where we, we fell short and the need for a savior. The Apostle Paul also says in, in Romans, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had said, do not covet. Carries on later on in the chapter, it says, In order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. And so when there was, there was law, and, and also it talks about in, in Romans that there's a, there's a law that even the Gentiles had. Even though they didn't have the law of Moses, they had a law that was written on their consciences, written on their heart. That people know when something is, is wrong. And so this, this all happens realizing that I, you can't actually keep it. You can't do it perfectly. Not even Abraham could. We see this in, G, in Jesus in his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Where he says, you've heard it said this about murder, about adultery. It says, you know, do not kill. Do not commit adultery. But he says, you know, if you've, if you've actually had hatred in your heart towards someone, it's the same thing as murdering them. Well, I never committed adultery. Well, have you lusted someone in your, in your heart? It's the same thing. And the question there goes, well, who could do this? Who could keep this? And that was the point, is that we couldn't, and we needed Jesus Another role of the law, it says in this passage, is, is, was really a guarding until the era of faith. So when it talks about until faith came, it's talking about a new time, a new era, and that was under Christ. There was the era of the law, an era of faith. And so in verse 24, it talks about this custody, protective custody almost, that the law had on us. 
some commentators, or, or maybe in your translation, it talks about that the law was a, as a tutor. And it's this idea almost of, not, a, not really a teacher, but someone that would be in charge of children. Something familiar in the, in the context of the day. Perhaps in, in Roman culture, whatever, there was a couple of the family, they were, they were busy and they would have children and they needed someone to take care of the children. And so kind of, a, kind of a nanny or a governess, but someone that actually, they'd be with the kid all day. And every time that, you know, the kid would do something wrong, they were right there. Nope, that's wrong. They would be there for discipline. And this is part of the role of the law. Maybe think when I, was a, when I was a kid, I don't know, probably grade three or four back in the day, we had uh, our discipline at school was writing lines. Does anyone remember writing lines? So a few of you. Okay, who's the youngest person here? Let's, let's see, who wrote lines? Tre- Trevor, you wrote lines? Really? Sweet. I thought that was like, uh, you're, you're still a young man, right? Writing lines. And so, you know, <laughs> you would, are you just making that up to make me feel better? You wrote the principal's name? Oh, I see. Okay, yeah. So some of you are going, what are you talking about here, right? But if something you did and, and say, I know probably one time for me it was I might have told a lie or something. And so I had to write, you know, 50 times on the blackboard. Um, that's a black thing with used chalk. And, you know, I will not tell a lie or, I, you know, I won't lie to the teacher again or whatever. Write this like 50 times, right, over and over and over again. And, it, you know, it just seems kind of, it's like a little redundant. But it, the idea is, it gets the idea in your head and you don't want to be doing that again. Obviously, some of us maybe experienced harsher discipline at, at different times in our, our days, but things have changed. I think maybe schools should go back to writing lines at least, but another topic. But this is the idea, this, this, this custodian or this, this person that would be watching over the child is what Paul is relating to the, the role of the law. They were with the person all the time. They were teaching, instructing, scolding, directing. This is the idea that the law was, was always you know, kind of present in there, but they couldn't keep it. And so it was an idea of a custody arrangement until the child would grow up. And this is the context that he's saying, until we, we mature, and that was the time when Christ came, and now we actually are no longer under this custodian, but now under faith and by the law of the Spirit. And so it's not that we just completely abandon it. Like, there's principles, even as Tammy mentioned, the, the, the law, the Ten Commandments, those things. We don't just ditch those. Those are things we learned, but now there's a, there's a freedom in Christ, and it's a, a new law that is at work, and it's the law of the Spirit. Romans 8 says this, verse 1 to 4, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. So Paul said is this, this was never the intent of the law that it would bring salvation. 
the purpose of the law was never something that we were, were trying to actually have happen that we could do successfully. It was also always just for a time to lead us until the time of Christ. So there was a problem that, that came about as the law, and this is evident throughout the book of Galatians, and just quickly. So this is what happened with the law, is that it became the way that Jews believed they were justified by God. It became the way. And that set all kinds of things in motion that were opposed to the gospel of Christ. And secondly, it caused social divisions. It had a very impactful thing that happened within the life of the church when there was, this is, these are those who follow the law. These are, are ones that do not come under the law. And there was, basically that was it with Jews and Gentiles as we talked about a little while ago with the tables. There was a separation. Okay, thirdly, this is for us today. How do we share in this promise? In verse 25 to 29. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ... There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. All right, so Paul is saying here, by faith, we are all sons of God. And if you have your scripture journal and want to write it in your, in your Bible, circle that word all. It's a big, it's a big all. We are all Sons of God. There's this distinctions are going to be broken down. And we see this recognized in, in the act of baptism. So one thing that is curious in here is that this word sons, sons of God. If you have an NIV, it would say children of God. And, you know, some translations try are trying to make things more gender inclusive. And in a lot of cases, that's not a big deal. One thing with this, I, I think there's an important component here that is missing, that is lost when, when you make it children instead of sons. See, Paul isn't trying to make a patriarchal statement here, uh, but this, the word sons there is actually the word for son, and there has a masculine noun part of it. And so what he's saying is the context of it. It's more than, more than just saying, you know, this is a man thing or not a woman thing and there's a separation that that's not the point of it the idea that the role of a son in the culture was the one that would inherit when they grew up right no longer needing the custodian but now actually grown up and receiving the inheritance and so it isn't in any way exclusive to men he's just saying that this is now an identity thing this is this is about your identity as a, a son of God, that you have a father, the one that you can call on. And chapter 4 talks about this. We'll get to that, saying it's like Abba. We can now call God our father and that we're all included in that. And not by keeping the law, but by faith. Okay, so that's, that's a, a kind of an important thing, I think, in, in that understanding. Our identity is, is sons, that we actually share in the inheritance of it, but it doesn't have anything to do with as far as the, the male-female part of it. We're all in Christ on the same level, and the idea is that there is a, a real abolishing of, of position and status. Okay, so as it, it gets into this, 
um, baptism is a key component of this. It says just like in, your, in baptism, baptism is an identity issue. With, in the early church, this was something that, that happened really simultaneously with, with faith. It was, it was the initial and necessary response of faith. It wasn't a, a secondary action. And today, when we practice baptism, it continues to express that picture that you are putting on Christ as a new creation. More on that in a little second, then we'll wrap up. So he talks about this in the last part here, the cultural, social, and sexual distinctions that no longer have relevance in Christ. The common prayer of a Jewish man was, blessed be God that he did not make me a Gentile, ignorant or a slave or a woman. This was the, the prayer of a Jewish man. Notice how Paul is breaking that down. See, our status has no relevance in the kingdom of God. So it doesn't matter if you make minimum wage or if you're a corporate executive. It doesn't matter your race, your nationality, your skin color. It doesn't matter if you're male or female. Your identity is as a, a son, one that has this position now in the family. It makes all in Christ on the same level. It's abolishing of, of position and status. And as a result of that, he says this beautiful words in the last sentence here, that we are now, if we are Christ, we are heirs of the promise originally given to Abraham. And that's available to us in Christ. Okay, close with a few takeaways and we'll wrap. First of all this, uh, we enter the family of God only by faith in Christ. Again, this sounds like the broken record of Galatians. It's the song sheet that we sing from. So our efforts, our work, our performance, none of it provides us with any merit in our standing with God. If you, if you hear nothing else throughout this series, I hope that that continues to be the, the drum that we keep beating. Only by faith. And this transforms our identity to that of a, of a son of the Father. And this is an invitation to all here who hear this, who hear the gospel. Come in faith. Believe. Receive. Surrender and trust. Put your trust in him. Secondly, baptism. It's a response of faith and identifying with Christ. This was the normative practice in the early church. Believe in your heart. It was clearly synced with confession of mouth. Baptism, it's a picture of being fully under, underwater. It's no longer you. It's, it's you are now identified with Christ in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. One of the first, the first baptism that I ever did of a, of a young person in my, when I, in my early in ministry, I, I baptized him and the pastor, my lead pastor said to me after, he said, you know, uh, great job, uh, but you didn't fully submerse him. His hands were still dry, you know, and he was, he was kind of, you know, sort of joking, but also saying like, man, when you baptize someone, you give them the full plunge. Because that's what baptism is. It's you're all in. You're all in, in Christ. And so if you've ever taken a baptism class with me, I'll probably tell you that. Uh, if you've ever had, um, you know, me baptize you, it's like, I'm, I'm going to, you're all, you're getting wet fully, fully plunged. And that is, that is this picture, this full surrender a death to yourself, and putting on of Christ. 
And so I, I ask you if, if that's something maybe that you, you haven't done. You've been, it's been maybe tugging at you. Um, we're not here to put guilt on you in any way, but we invite you to, to walk in obedience to the Lord. You know what we, we, we say often here? That followers, what do they do? They follow. Followers follow. So if you're a follower of Jesus and, and baptism hasn't been an experience of your life, that you haven't walked in that obedience to him, we invite you to do that. Uh, talk to me about that. We want to give you that opportunity uh, to publicly declare that you are all in. You are a follower of Jesus. Third and finally, check your heart, your attitude towards each other. As it says, we are all one in Christ. There's, there's continues to be distinctions that are prevalent in the church. And some you might have recognized in our church here. And I'll tell you this, it weakens our unity and it weakens the gospel message, the impact of the gospel. And so hear this very clearly before I pray today. Paul says these, these distinctions are no longer relevant. It doesn't matter if you are a new Christian or if you come from a long line of faith. It doesn't matter if you have Mennonite, Dutch, Anglican, Pentecostal, anything else, history or ancestry. It doesn't matter if you are a sixth generation Canadian or if you've just arrived last week. It doesn't matter if you rent a basement or if you own a whole block. It doesn't matter if you're single or married or have kids or not. Doesn't matter if you drive a 99 Civic or a Mercedes Benz. In all things, all things, what matters is being in Christ. And so let's make that the unifying message and the priority here at our church. Let's pray.